0: Good morning. I see some people are still with child. Some people are letting go of their children. Some people are holding on to their children. Crystal, we're praying for you any day now, I know. Yes. All right. Well, if you guys have a Bible, and I would love for you to see this in your own Bible so you can, or whatever you've got to to hold on to during the week, we're going to be visiting the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36 this morning. So if you'll get that location opened in your Bible, that'll be helpful. You know, you like me, we live in a world, it's a noisy world, isn't it? I feel like the world is a noisy, noisy place. And some of what the the background noise that we've been filtering and thinking through is, is the noise of social settings. And so a couple of weeks ago, we, we took a little bit of a detour just to visit something I wanted to conclude today. We called. I say there used to be a title for the series up there somewhere. It's, it's gone somewhere else. Uh, social revolutions and gospel people, right? There is these settings of social revolutions that dot the landscape of human history, And we're going to look at them really quickly to get us into our setting, because you and I live in social settings. We live in a, in a national setting. We live in the, a global setting even now, but you live in your own home with people and you live with people that are in your life. And so anytime people get together, there's a social dimension to that. And I wish we could all say every one of our social dimensions is, is healthy and great. We've got no bad memories. We haven't hurt one another. We've got wonderful exchanges taking place all the time, but that's just not the case, is it? And so what we found out when we visited Ezekiel, Ezekiel took us to a place in Jerusalem, uh, to the city of Jerusalem in chapter 22 of Ezekiel, where the wheels were coming off in society. People were being harmed, oppressed, neglected. People with power were hurting the people without power. The, the city that was to be God's great revelation on the earth had changed its name from the holy city to the bloody city because blood was being shed and lives were being lost. They just weren't doing society right. And we're still not doing it right, are we? But how do, you, how do you address that? And what do you need to know as believers, as you and I travel through these times, what do I need to know to even look at these situations correctly? Let me, let's, let's go back to the first moment of, of social dysfunction, right? Genesis chapter three, and this is going to be the case for all eternity. Individuals are going to exercise their will in a way that it becomes at the expense of somebody else. That's what we see from this moment on. Genesis chapter three, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You don't have to be very familiar at all with the Bible to know this story, right? This is the moment where the wheels come off. But it's interesting to go back into Eve's moment with her, right? She's going to stare at this tree and she's going to think something. She's going to have some feelings about that tree. She's going to have some reasons to act in a certain way. And they get highlighted here. She saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. This is, this is going to help me. This is going to give me a raise. This is going to boost me. This is going to do something for me that I'm really interested in that tree for those reasons. But how many of you guys can go to that location and say, Eve, were you thinking about everybody else in that moment? When she stared at that tree and she just kind of had that, that mm, hmm, moment was she thinking about her husband? Was she thinking about her children? Was she thinking about the impact that this would have on others in the society that would come after her? And obviously she had lost sight of that, right? And, and this is how sin in a social setting is going to operate. It's going to find reasons that make sense to an individual, but not necessarily to everybody else and not necessarily to serve everyone else. So I wrote in your outline, here is the first act of social dysfunction. Eve sought a personal benefit and exchanged the good of others to have it. And then she looked for other like-minded partners to join her. Right? What ends up getting said at the end of that passage is she took of its fruit, she ate, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, so here's the downgrading of social settings. An individual sees something, that, that that's to my advantage, I'm drawn to that, and then at some point you want others to join with you in that regard. And that could be your family, it could be your spouse, in this case it was her husband but yet it wasn't going to be good for everybody else, right? Michael Imlet's written an excellent book called saints, sufferers and sinners. And he says, scripture clearly portrays the origin of humanity's problems as sin. Genesis three, Adam and Eve mistrusted the goodness of God, their creator. They wanted to be like God and they disobeyed his command, sending all all of creation into a literal death spiral, like a massive nuclear blast, with shockwaves spreading out across the globe and across time as well. Right? Our first parents' rebellion set in motion all that was in, was and is wrong with our world, in our relationships with God and others. In that sense, sin is our deepest problem as human beings. So something happened in the garden that literally was an explosion that rippled into every setting in every human life so that every time society tries to do life together, this sin issue is touching the world that we live in. And so you have individuals who are bent on something that they see as an advantage for themselves. And now they're going to go find families, groups, tribes, nations, allies to protect their own interest. And game on. For the rest of each, uh, of our lives, this has been the game of our societies. And... We're tempted, you know, there's a lot of noise today when you watch the news and you watch the stories and the hostilities and all the breakdown that's happening across social settings and races and ages, et cetera. And we're tempted to stare at that and and almost conclude that, hey, this is, we're the ones who kind of have gotten off track. But if you study history, you recognize humanity's never been on track in this category, right? I can remember, in school, I think the, the farthest back, I remember, you studied the Sumerians, the Sumerians at one point, but then you studied the Egyptians, probably the first dynasty or nationality that people spend time studying, right? So if we go all the way back to the 1800s BC, I want to, I want to just read something for you that comes from that setting. There's a moment in which the Egyptians live nearby the Nubians in Africa. And this moment where, you know, Eve looked up at something and went, hmm, I like that. It's going to be modeled by every society after her. So the Egyptians are going to look over at the Nubians and go, hmm, I like something over there. There's something there that I want for me. And they're going to begin to treat those people differently. And they're going to have a different value In their lives, right? And this is an actual placard that was written in honor of Pharaoh Soneseret III. And one of the leaders wrote this placard to him saying, They, speaking of the Nubians, they are not people one respects. They are wretches, craven-hearted. My majesty has seen it. It is not an untruth. I have captured their women. I have carried off their dependents. And also had carried off their ivory and their gold. Right? There was there was a moment in which one group looked at another group and said, You got stuff we want. And and we're willing to treat you in a certain way. As a matter of fact, we're gonna devalue you, right? We're gonna we're gonna lower our opinion of you, and you're not people we respect. You're wretches and craven hearted. Right? Have you just heard this play out across history? Where one group's got a low opinion and almost that's what gives you permission, right? I can treat you like a subhuman because I think you are. I don't think your existence rises to the level of my existence. So I can go ahead and take advantage of you. And you move through human history from the Egyptians to the Babylonians and what they did to the Mediterranean and the nations that were there. To the Roman Empire and what it did to the Europeans as one nation after another came under their desires and their plans and what was good for Rome. The British Empire colonizing the world. There's a reason why English is spoken in so many places around the world. Because there was a group in England. It's kind of a strange thing if you study the history of this. There was a group in England, the Haves. Many of them didn't want to share with the other you know, people trying to come up in society. So when they started to colonize the world, the people who populated those colonies were kind of people they wanted to get rid of. Say, like, hey, you want a life? You want to strike it rich? You go off over there. You go to that land over there. Oh, and by the way, while you're there, send us back the spices and the riches because you, you, can, you can create wealth for us. And the British empire spread throughout the world, dominating one group after another. Because somebody, right? This is a simple formula. Somebody in Britain looked over there and said, hmm, that works for me. What do we got to do to sail people to the other side of the world so we can have some of that? And they figured out and they would do it. You know, it's interesting, this observable persecution of people. A number of years ago, uh, Gina and I visited New York City. And if you ever go there, you got to go to this, this place. It's called the Tenement Museum. It's on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And it's a, it's a street that's, I mean, it's right out of the pictures you see back in the early 1900s, etc. People lived in these row houses. And there's this one three-story building that they've preserved on each floor a, a different time period from the past. And you walk in and it's just like what it was back in the early 1900s. And, and that neighborhood got settled by the variety of Europeans that were coming over. They'd come over in waves crisis was happening in Europe. They'd leave and try to find a new place and they'd all kind of settle there. And I don't remember the order. You had the Germans at one point, you had the Irish at another, you had Italians at another. Uh, I think Jews were in that neighborhood as well. But what happened when you listen to the storylines, what happened to each and every one of them is when a new group showed up, the group that was there before persecuted them. Not because they were a different color, just because you might Take what we've got. You're a threat to the world that we've created. So I particularly, I visited one of the, the storylines was about an Irish family because I got a lot of Irish relatives that came from Ireland. And so I'm listening to the storyline play out and you, you see these newspaper clippings of what was happening when they were coming over and settling in that part of New York. And there were, uh, there were signs on, on businesses and restaurants, about Irish and dogs not being allowed. Both the Irish and the dogs were not allowed. There was, there was ads for jobs that were there. And you know they'd come right out and say, Irish need not apply, right? So there is this thing in the human heart that once I see that, that there's something here that has an advantage for me, and you might threaten that, there's something on the inside of the human heart that's going to pick teams and secure that for us and not for you. And listen, whether that happens on a global scale, on the nightly news, or it's just happening in your own household. are you, you? know, Sibling rivalries are a version of this, where somebody's interest is being threatened by somebody else's interest. Uh, intimidating husbands, threatening, violent husbands. Angry, harsh men in their homes are a version of this. It's a guy who's figured out he wants things a certain way. He needs it to be that way. And he's going to do whatever he's got to do to secure that. That includes intimidating you and making sure you do whatever it is that he wants you to do. Listen, the the mother-in-law that's messing with your household... She's doing the same thing, right? There's something she wants from your family a certain way. And in her heart, what rises up is the same thing that rose up in Eve's. She's looking at that tree and going, "Hmm, what do we got to do to make that work for me? And then next thing you know, there's undermining and there's criticism and there's problems that are taking place. And listen, this shows up in Marriages in all forms of social settings and, and and listen oh so noisy out there so much noise going on in our world right now but the stuff that really troubles us troubles us is the the social exchanges in our own families right in our own homes and the people that are closest to us you want to get upside down it's those people that are going to make you upside down but here's the question how do we address these social divisions and these conflicts and these hostilities, how, how do we address them? How do we figure out some way to change them? Right? There's lots of sociological studies that have gone on for years and years and years that have observed how people behave and why they behave. And, and what if we did this and what if we did that? There's government models and government philosophies that are designed to help groups of people do group life together? How do you tap into the things that motivate people, right? So capitalism comes along. Capitalism says, hey, we're, we're a rewarder of those who take up their life, take responsibility and work hard. And so for a long time, that was great. All along, all around the world, America was the land of opportunity. If you'll come here and you'll work hard, you can have a life. And lots of people said, hey, I'm willing to do that. And that's exactly what they did. And they changed their lives. And to this day, actually, people from all over the world want to come here. Because they can, they can improve their life. Because the, the system was designed to give opportunity to people who would take up that opportunity. But you know, whenever people take up the opportunity, they're going to be another set of people who are taken away from. So long comes ideas like socialism. And socialism says, hey, you know what? Things aren't going real well. So let's see if we can reorganize here. So there's a few of us that are going to tell all the rest of you, we're going to take your stuff and we're going to move it over this way. And we're going to try and create a little bit more of an equal playing field so that everybody can be happy. So socialism comes along and tries to tap into that. And then there's moments where you get these adjustments in government. Democracy comes along. You know, if, if you're not a student of, of British history, you, you kind of don't get why the Constitution sounds the way it does. Why there's so much checks and balances in place? Because this government was seeking to protect people from the tyranny of the monarchy. There was a little handful of people who were making all the decisions to oppress everybody else, to limit their lives, to extract from them, to put them in danger. And you were going to pay taxes and live your life for the benefit of a few. Everybody was going to benefit the few. And so the democracy comes along and says, no, that doesn't work, man. That is, that's not right. Everybody should benefit. Everybody should have a voice. So we're going to empower everybody to protect people from the tyranny of the few. Listen, these, and we can talk about these ideas till the cows come home, but have any of these fixed the social dysfunctions of our world? And here we are, we're we're the year 2021 in America that leads the world in democratic principles. And we are as divided and as troubled as most of us can remember in our lifetime right now. And it's not because we're not a democracy. It's because there are other issues in these settings that are at work. And so... I said, I'm not trying to debate the varieties of opinions and ways that that life can get structured and governments can get done. By the way, I think too many Christians are in the weeds having arguments about those various human inventions and which one's better than another one. And quite honestly, if you'll do more homework than you're doing, you're going to find out that sometimes those ideas have worked really, really well in this country, only to not work very well at all in this one over here for a variety of reasons. But I'm not here today to promote a a sociological idea. I'm here to tell you that there was this one idea in the Bible, this massive one idea that made God's people into a gospel people that we're going to stare at in Ezekiel chapter 36. It was God's means of looking at this corruption that infiltrated every human being through Eve. Didn't come through some nationality. It came through Eve and Adam into the human race. And now God has got this revolutionary means of dealing with it. And it gets revealed in Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 25. Let's read together. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, right? This, this is one of the most powerful, concise presentations of the gospel in the old Testament that you would find anywhere. Amazing revelation of what God was intending the gospel to be and to do to us as his people. I love Charles Spurgeon put it in this context. He says, this is one of the opening words of the glorious covenant of grace. Ezekiel's copy of the covenant is full and clear and deserves to be written in letters of gold and hung up in the best chamber of every believer's dwelling. This is the Magna Carta of saints. I love that he's using that in this context, right? You guys remember what the Magna Carta was? It's this document written in the 1200s that ends up really shaping Western civilization. But it was an argument from England about how to make sure everybody's got rights. Make sure people are cared for. Things like due process got invented because you didn't have due process in England under a tyrannical king. Who once he made an accusation, you were done. There was no defense for that. And the Magna Carta comes along and says, no, that's not how you treat people. There should be due process here. And there should be limits on the power that a government has. Right, So the Magna Carta kind of became this thing that, that influenced Western civilization. We have values today from that Magna Carta. But I love that Charles Spurgeon says, hey, for the Christian, Ezekiel 36 is the governing document of our lives. It is what tells us about who we are, how to do life how to relate to one another, right? This this is God putting his finger in the place where the real revolution's gotta happen because the reason why the social dilemma is happening starts in the Garden of Eden and God goes to that place in these words. But I want you to notice two things before I unpack the second one. First, notice God is the critical doer in this setting. How many times did you read the words, I will, in that passage? I will sprinkle. You don't have to count them. You you read it seven times. Seven times. God steps into the setting of the bloody city of Jerusalem with all of its dysfunction. And God says, "I I will. 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 How important is it to the human dilemma that that God is doing something in our midst? How critical is it that we are a people who look to God to do what God must do? He's, He's the feature mover and shaker for humanity's situation. For every one of our social unrest moments, it's tempting to think we're the ones that can change that. But God steps in and says, no, no, I'm the one. Who needs to do something right here? Right, kudos to the 12-step program that created language for this. This is where if you've ever been in a 12-step program or around a 12-step program, you'll, you'll know that the first two steps highlight this reality. Right. Step number one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. That our lives had become unmanageable. Right? So that's admission number one. And if we could just substitute a word here, uh, we as human beings, if we were all in our spiritual 12 step program, the first step would be we admitted we were powerless over sin. Sin entered the world and humanity didn't have a secret weapon to overcome it, to undo it, to be able to manage it. And it has spun our world out of control. The second step is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. A power greater than ourselves. So there's a situation we can't manage and there's a power greater than ourselves that we have got to get in touch with that. But let's be honest. Most of us, when we come across kind of a 12-step thing, where it's like, oh yeah, well, that's, that's what all the addicts need right? That's what all those people who have finally, they've come to grips with the fact that their life is so out of control and they're so in the weeds. Yeah, I know a few people like that, but, but you're not one of them though, right? That doesn't, that's not how you feel about your, you're in control, right? You can do some stuff. You've got some resources. You're educated. You can think your way through this thing. You can make some wise decisions. You can pull yourself out of this. This is how we feel in America. We're a well-educated technological society. We feel like we have kept ourselves out of the weeds. But when it comes to what Eve brought into the human race, uh, we're going to need something outside of ourselves to deal with it. God has to be the center. And, And this is what is so missing. And as a gospel people who travel through these social revolutions... You and I must guard our hearts from becoming a people who are getting swept up into how the world is seeing this because the world doesn't seem like they need God to do this. Do they? Are you hearing much God talk in the noise of our culture and all the war that we're having between people groups? Is, is there a looking for God to show up in some amazing, powerful way, or are we trying to invent something that man can use as a tool? Man can be empowered by. Man can make this work. God has gotten marginalized. I mean, let me just, and let me let me say this. Let me let me get into your backyard here a little bit. Um, right, you, your marriage is a social setting, isn't it? It's two people trying to figure out how to do one thing. So it's a social setting. It's the Egyptians and the Nubians. It's just a a smaller version. You're trying to figure out what's going to be in your best interest, what's going to be safe for you, what's going to be good for you, et cetera, et cetera. And when you hit a problem, this is where marriage counseling sounds like. You know, the first visit almost is never sounding like, it, it's, you know, let me, let me point to me. Let me point to all that's going on. It, it's, it's basically, Hey, can you help that person that I'm married to figure this thing out and, str- and change and overcome something and adjust. And there's this, this war of territory that takes place in that moment, right? Cause we're, we're thinking that the reason why my life is so messed up is because I've got this person in my life who won't play by a certain set of rules. They won't adjust. They won't be a certain thing. And if they could just get it right. So we read a book, we go to marriage counseling, we go somewhere because part of us can be thinking, if if they could just get it right, then I could, I could, I could do this. I could do this thing. But the biggest difficulty of our lives is, is not other people. It is the proximity of God to our own soul. That's the biggest problem of our lives. Because the nearer and the more experience we have of the presence and life of God given to us, you can do all kinds of things that you never thought you'd ever be able to do. So if we're just waiting for something to reform society on the outside of us, we're missing what Ezekiel 36 is offering to us. It's offering a God who would come to us and would revolution our lives from the inside out. And what a difference that would make in every social setting we find ourselves in. Here's the second thing you see in that passage. God is doing something in this passage. He's doing what we need him to do. Right? All these I wills, we need God to do this for us. So, so what is it? What is it that we need? I look at verse 25. Well, we need to be cleansed. From our uncleannesses. The Bible uses this interesting word, these uncleannesses. It's like sin came along and it put a stain on us that we can't get off. Sin came along and touched us and and it did something to us that's permanent that we can't seem to escape it. We we can't get rid of it. We can't move it off of us. We can't adjust. It's put a dent in us. It's changed our shape in some way. And we need God to come in and do something about that. Remember from the beginning, Adam and Eve, when sin reached out and touched their world, um, they immediately do one stupid thing after another. Right? You understand, Adam and Eve probably never, not probably, they never had a conflict. There was harmony in the, in the garden. There was two people doing one thing together, and they got along great. But they were two people doing one thing in their lives together. But when sin came in, all of a sudden now there's conflict it's like somebody gave them a class on how to blame the other person. We find that immediately sin shows up and they, you know, it wasn't me, it was her. And they, just, they blame one another and they're, they're, now they're, they're criticizing each other. The nature of their relationship changes because now the stain of sin has infiltrated the way they treat one another. And then they remember their bright idea in this moment? Hey, this is how we're gonna fix this. This has gone bad. We don't know exactly what just happened, but this is bad. Let's hide from God. Isn't that a great idea? Anybody thinking this, this is really stupid, right? This is one, you can't hide from God. Does anybody know this? Second though, why would you hide from the only one who can fix what you just did? But that didn't make any sense to them in that moment. See, when sin shows up with all of its disorienting power and it sticks to you and you can't get it off, It will invite you to do confusing, harmful, foolish things. They should have run to God, right? The first thing they should have done, they should have remembered the affection that God has for them as their creator and as their father. They should have partnered together and said, let's move toward God. Let's not move away from him. But see, this is what sin does. It brings this sense of confusion and separation with it. And, and, and then that brings with it its own sense of a whole host of vocabulary words that we struggle with on the inside of our soul. Guilt, shame, loss, isolation becomes part of our story. And then when you let that sit around long enough, that starts to turn into things like fear, anger, comparison and jealousy, right? Just find some people who aren't going what you're, what you're going through and compare yourself to where they are. And then you begin to feel sorry for yourself because you're in a place that, how, how come I'm here? How come that always, that never happens to me, right? This is what this stain of sin gets on us. And it chases us around and you can't get it off. And God comes along and says, I will cleanse you. From that. All right, so when you and I stare out at life, did somebody invent another cleaning product besides God in this equation? Is there anything else out there that could cleanse us from the impact that sin has had on our souls? There isn't any, right? Ed, Ed Welch in his book, Shame Interrupted, says Ezekiel is talking about that initial once and for all cleansing. No matter how we became unclean, whether by acts of other people or by our own, we know there must be a cleansing that reaches far beneath the skin. This is that cleansing. What God said He would come and do to go into the places of our soul and bring cleansing to us. And then He says further, He says, I will cleanse you from all your idols. Right Idols sit inside of us a little differently than just sin does. Idols are these, these leaders, these influencers, these ideas, these things in us that motivate us. They talk to us. They offer us deals. They get us aimed at things and seeking things in our lives. That's what idols can do. So there's not only an issue that we do things that are sinful, but there's something in me that wants to do certain things. And God comes along and says, I will cleanse you from that as well. Listen, here, here's the problem. you we put two people in the same room together who have different idols in their lives, and they're not going to serve the same idea, right? This is where conflict begins. I've got something driving me that's different than what's driving you. But what God had created, God had created people who had one reason for their lives. His reason For the glory of his name. But sin took that away and gave Eve her own reason and Adam his own reason. And everybody after them got their own reason. And so from now on, when you try to do something as a society, you're going to have some real problems and difficulties. Michael Imlet, again in his book, says the Bible presupposes that we are faced incessantly with evils from within ourselves. Sin's pervasive reality is like gravity. Gravity. It continually pulls the people of God downward. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel struggled with sin despite having been redeemed from their slavery and brought into covenant relationship with the Lord. God gave them the Ten Commandments, why? To order their steps in keeping with his design for humanity to image him faithfully. Or this, this was the assignment of God to humanity. Do one thing. Everybody do one thing. You might do it in a lot of different ways, but do one thing. Image and bring the glory of God into his creation. And that's what God gives them. When you go into the promised land, here's the law. Walk this way that the image that you bear in this land will be mine. And then listen what Imlet says next. But Torah or the law was... Not enough. You just can't take a cool set of ideas and give them to people and say, hey, this will fix you. Here's some better ideas than the ones that you had before. This will fix you. Listen, that's true of America. That's true globally. That's true in a marriage. You just can't give the idolatrous human heart, another set of ideas, and think that will fix it. Listen what he goes on and says Animal sacrifices for sin could not ultimately atone for sin. Apart from a spiritual heart transplant and the gift of the Spirit, what we see in Ezekiel thirty six, bestowed through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for sinners. Like the apostle Paul, we cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we answer with him, thanks be to God. He will. What God said he would do, he will. Not not I will. God will do this. And in verse 26, God tells another aspect of our need. He says, you need to receive a new heart and a new spirit replacing the heart of stone with a heart of flesh right this is an interesting thing God looks into the heart and he doesn't say hey you need to rehabilitate the heart or refurbish the heart right he's not asking you to recondition the heart he's saying you have to replace the heart he says the heart that you have right now is like a stone it's it won't be shaped It can't be penetrated. You can't put something new inside of it. You can't change the reasonings and moldings of it. It's like stone. So God says, here's the game plan. I'm going to take that heart out. I will do that. You can't do that. I will do that. I will give you a heart that's moldable and shapeable. One that God can interact with. One that God can give new desires to it. One that God can reshape it can heal us from the things that would have sent us in a direction that was harmful, but God changes the shape of our hearts and gives us an ability to live in a different setting in a different way. In verse 27, he says, we need to receive a new spirit that causes us to walk and obey God. We need a new spirit the description of the Bible describing us is that we have this powerless condition going on inside of us, powerless. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It says that we're blind, right? So blind people don't see a little bit. They don't see at all. Dead people don't have a little bit of life. They got no life at all. So God describes a need that's in us that he needs to come give us power that we don't have on our own. He's gonna have to do that. Charles Spurgeon says the blessing here promised is one of the most essential that men can need or that God can give. Without this blessing, all the other benefits of the covenant would be null and void. It is vain to have a savior if we have not spiritual power to believe in him. Right? We need a power to come to us from outside of us that God must give. He says, of what use is it to us that there should be provided precious promises if we have no faith worked in us by the Holy Spirit whereby we can grasp these promises, plead them in prayer and obtain their fulfillment. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, but holiness grows not in any human heart, but by nature, without him, we can do nothing. He breathes all the animation into the Christian church. So how do you and I engage any social setting with a a fresh sense of doing and being something different than what naturally we want? I'm gonna need the spirit of God. I'm gonna need the empowering presence of the spirit of God. I need something beyond me to be able to do that. And then God says one more thing here before we close. He says, we need to dwell in a new land and to belong to God. I love that, that imagery there. I mean, all of us are searching for this, this setting, this place that feels like home, right? There's something precious about the, that connection point, that place of security, that place where you can let your guard down, that place of home. God says, I'm going to give you a land and I will be your God and you will be my people. You're going to belong to me and I'm going to belong to you. One of the greatest things the human heart is looking for, which which gets depicted in social disruption, is my heart is looking to belong to somebody. It wants to find its way back to the creator whom I belong to. And it wants to feel that sense of belonging. But I've got to get that from God. God. I can't get that from people. I've got to get it from God. One last thought from Ed Welch. Ronald, you can come back up, buddy. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This sprinkling is with no ordinary water. The spirit himself is the water. At the very heart of shame is the absence of relationships, the absence of being known, personal isolation. Many religions have cleansing rituals, but the cleansing given by the true God is fundamentally about him uniting himself with you. His world is intensely personal. You are cleansed by the person of God so that the spirit of God can dwell with you. So I know we're we're staring out at society We're we're seeing the brokenness of the world, and and you and I are traveling through this time period where we're watching how brokenness is playing out. You please don't don't hear the gospel in such a way that that it evaporates a sense of compassion from our lives. We we see people suffering, we see somebody's choices causing harm to somebody else, we see people in desperation, we see people being neglected. There should be a compassion that rises up in our hearts. There should be a care, a sense of of sympathy and brokenness over what people are experiencing all around us. But when you and I pass through this place, there's a mandate that sits on our lives. It is go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Ezekiel 36 is the gospel. It's not a message of, self-reformation. It's not a message of better laws than what you used to have. Now go try harder. That's not the gospel, right? It's not a message that we can, if you'll let us, we can run your programs and we can change your world. No, no, we can't. We need the one who says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will in all these aspects of the human soul. And when that begins to be experienced, then you and I relate to each other differently and it radically transforms our world. So listen, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of compassion. And I'm not saying that the programs and the things that are going on in this world, practical things need to happen. Common grace needs to find its way into people's lives. And the church should be all for that. But we are a gospel people traveling through these social settings, whether those social settings are our families, our homes, our personal exchanges, or they're the culture that we watch the noise happening in right now. We need Ezekiel 36. That's the Magna Carta of our lives. And so I want to do this for us. I want to pray for us just for a moment. So if you just would make some room in your own heart right now, how real is that verse for you right now? How transformative is what this verse is offering to us? All these I wills of God, you feeling it? Experiencing it yourself? Or is it the noise of life that's pushed those things too far to the edges? Let's give God just a moment together. You can stand up with me just for a second. Let's pray. Ask the Lord. Lord, it is a good confession for my soul to be in hearty agreement and be able to say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Lord, some of the most painful places that we will live as human beings are in the settings where people have caused pain. And in those same settings, Lord, where we have caused other people pain. And God, you you come to us in this word. You come revealing some things that, that we need you to do, Lord, that we can't do for ourselves. We need a power and a transformation to come into our lives that we don't have apart from you. We need a cleansing, Lord not some vegetable detox, not that kind of cleansing. Lord, we need, we need something to touch the stains, the twists, the dents and the damage that have taken place as we have been exposed to a fallen world. And it's, God, it's made us confused. It's made us turned in on ourselves. It's made us run and hide from you. It's put us in conflict with others lord you said you could come and cleanse us from our uncleanness you could come and touch those places so that those things don't control our lives but in moments where we run to the other side of the garden we also create new desires whether that's the desire for the tree or the desire for protection or whatever it is that we crave in our hearts god's idols grow in those places And Lord, I wish this past week I could say that there was never a moment where I encountered a will inside of me that wanted anything different than what you want. But God, that's not where I've been this past week. There are things in me that I want something and it's competing with what you want. And Lord, when that goes off, I almost always get at odds with people as well. God, you came near to us and you announced this gospel, this incredible news that you could cleanse us from idols. Lord, you can do that. You do that in our lives, Lord. So many here have experienced being released from demanding desires and cravings that once shaped our lives and controlled what we would ever be. But Lord, we're still in need of that touch, Lord. We still need it this morning that we need it for all the places that our heart wants to run to find shelter outside of you. For all the reasons in our lives that we want to build something besides something for the glory of God. God, thank you for going to the heart of our lives. Lord, when we ask the hard question like Paul did, who will set us free from this body of death? Well, Lord, you will. By giving us a new heart that's shapeable, can come under your influence and your control that can be filled by your desires and then you empower us by the holy spirit we're not left to ourselves or this is good news this is what our lives desperately need and then lord you you lay claim to our lives your word says let the redeemed of the lord say so well lord we're saying so this morning We are yours, God. We belong to you. You have taken over ownership of our lives. You have laid claim to be our God and to never forsake us, to never leave us alone. And you've said these precious words to us that you would be our God and we would be your people. God, that's true this morning. That's true because the gospel is true and it is our Magna Carta. So, Lord, as we live in a world that, that feels like it can't figure out a way to, to get uprighted, it can't figure out a way to fix the things that are broken, Lord, it's because it, it can't. Until it comes to you and recognizes it needs you, Lord. And, and God, make us, make us a city set on a hill. Make us a people, Lord, where there is a proclamation of your presence and your life and your light going off inside of us. Lord, joys that we've been released from demanding idols of our hearts, freedom from the things that have touched us and dented and twisted us. And let us make that gospel announcement to the world. This God still does this today. He will do it in your soul. Just make a comment if you're watching by our live stream, or maybe you're here this morning and you recognize, you recognize your own limits. You recognize your own struggles and what we've talked about this morning. And there comes a place where God initiates his activity in your life. And that gets received by faith. It's, it's an opening of a door, if you will, for God to come show up in new powerful ways in your life. And many people here, if you pulled them aside on the way out today and talked to them, they would tell you their story of when God began that work in them. And he can begin that work in you. And if you're watching and you want to do that, just tell the Lord, Lord, I want to yield my life to you. Tell him that. Tell him you want him to come forgive your sins, and to come live his life and to cleanse you of those sins and to give you a new heart, to give you everything Ezekiel 36 spoke about, a new life, a new heart, a new power and a belonging to him. Turn to him this morning. Trust him with your life. He'll radically change everything in your world. And listen, if you're making that decision this morning, you want to talk to anybody about that, please contact us at the church office. We would love to meet with you and help you take some steps to follow Jesus. For the rest of you guys, much love. Have an awesome, amazing week. Be gospel people amidst this social revolution. Amen? Amen.